Sidebar is brought to you by Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, Kern County College of Law, Empire College of Law located in Santa Rosa, and the Colleges of Law with campuses in Santa Barbara and Ventura. Welcome to Sidebar, discussions with local, state, and national experts about protecting our most critical individual and civil rights. Co-hosts, Law Dean's Jackie Gardena and Mitch Winnick. Douglas was concerned that so much of what went on in federal agencies was not transparent. On the other hand, he was lobbying behind the scenes in a very untransparent way. That's today's guest, Judge Margaret McEwen, currently serving on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. Welcome back to Sidebar. Our interview with Judge Margaret McEwen was conducted in December 2022 to discuss the recent publication of her book, Citizen Justice, the Environmental Legacy of William O. Douglas, a public advocate and conservative champion. As part of our conversation with the judge, we not only learned about the longest serving Supreme Court justice as an outspoken environmental advocate, but also that he was subject of two impeachment efforts during his 31 years on the Supreme Court. The second impeachment hearing raised questions about the fact that Justice Douglas received over $100,000 in payments from a private foundation during his tenure on the court, and that he failed to recuse himself from a case before the court that was considered a potential conflict of interest. Jackie, little did we know at the time of our interview with Judge McEwen that questions about what constitutes impeachable behavior by a Supreme Court justice would again be in the news. Even more surprising is that the current discussion of judicial ethics and the law have similar parallels to the impeachment discussion surrounding Justice Douglas. The question then was whether Justice Douglas should have accepted over $100,000 in payments from a private foundation. The question now is whether Justice Clarence Thomas should have accepted millions of dollars in gifts vacations, and travel from a private benefactor. In both cases, the justices were challenged about their failure to recuse themselves from cases before the court in which there was an alleged conflict of interest. And although our interview with the judge is entirely about her fascinating study of Justice William O. Douglas, an important part of that history is the discussion about the appropriate behavior of Supreme Court justices off the bench and whether they should be held to a higher standard. And really, we can't even say higher because uh, right now there are no standards that are applied to the Supreme Court, but that some kind of standards are necessary to maintain the integrity of the court and the public trust in the judiciary. Jackie, this sidebar episode reflects why we believe that in order to understand the law, it is important to know where we came from, where we're now, and where we want to be. Today's episode discussing the controversial life and tenure of Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas provides a valuable historical context that I think helps us today to consider the ethical standards that should be followed by our Supreme Court justices. My name is Jackie Gardina. I am the Dean of the Colleges of Law with campuses in Ventura and Santa Barbara, and I'm here with my co-host, Mitch Winnick. 
Hi, Jackie. My name is Mitch Winnick. I am the Dean of Monterey College of Law with campuses in Monterey, San Luis Obispo, Bakersfield, and Santa Rosa. Today, we have a rare opportunity that few lawyers ever experience. We get to appear before a federal judge, and we get to be the one asking the questions. Now, that is an experience that most lawyers only get to dream about. Yeah, but somehow I think I'm still more nervous than the judges for this particular Oh, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Judge Margaret McCune has served almost 25 years as a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. She is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, an affiliated scholar at the Center for the American West at Stanford University, and jurist in residence at the University of San Diego School of Law. Judge McEwen served as chair of the ABA Commission on the 19th Amendment, past president of the Federal Judges Association, and former chair of the U.S. Judicial Conference Code of Conduct Committee on Ethics. Somehow, amidst all of that, she has also made time to write a fascinating book on one of the most interesting characters, and I use that term intentionally with no disrespect, to serve as a U.S. Supreme Court Justice. Justice McEwen's book, Citizen Justice, The Environmental Legacy of William O. Douglas, is about the longest serving justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. William O. Douglas, who is known for having four wives as an active politician and potential vice presidential candidate while serving on the court, and as a target of judicial impeachment, rare then as it is rare now, and much lesser known, as Judge McCune describes, as a spiritual heir to conservation pioneers such as Teddy Roosevelt and John Muir. Jackie, I must admit that prior to reading Judge McEwen's book, I was completely unfamiliar with Justice Douglas's environmental legacy. Same here, Mitch, and I have to say one of the benefits of doing this podcast besides spending quality time with you is that I am introduced to topics like this and people like Justice Douglas, who I've known about for some of his opinions, but never appreciated this part of his background. Well, today we welcome judge and author Margaret McCune to Sidebar to talk with us about the legacy of Justice William O. Douglas. Welcome today, Judge McEwen. Thank you, and happy to be here. Judge, my initial reaction to your book was, if Justice Douglas was here today, his messaging on environmental sustainability would be as contemporary as any discussions that are currently being held on the world stage. Is that a fair assessment? In, in many ways, he was like a canary in a coal mine. There were a number of things that he brought to light that we're now hearing about today. A good example is dams. He parted ways with his president who appointed him, uh, FDR, because FDR, of course, was coming out of the Depression, the Dust Bowl, and he's really looking for economic development. There were a lot of dams going up, and Douglas warned against those because they endangered the environment and particularly the fish in his view. So that was one thing. And now some of those dams are actually coming down, like the Elwha Dam in Washington. He also warned about pesticides. (music) 
it is pretty amazing to think that Justice Douglas was so ahead of our time in his recognition of so many of these environmental issues, the environmental impact of dams, the overuse of pesticides, and the protection of national parks. However, his concern about who should be in control of the government was also a controversial topic. After we come back from this break, we are going to discuss Justice Douglas's concerns about what he considered the administrative state and what he thought was a lack of transparency by government agencies. Welcome to the future of legal intelligence. Trellis, a state trial court research and analytics solution. Trellis offers state trial court records for legal research with analysis on judges, opposing counsel, verdicts, motions, dockets, and legal issues. Use Trellis to discover how judges have ruled on similar motions or to gain insight into opposing counsel, prospects, and clients. To learn more or to request a Trellis demo, reach out to Mike Suarez at mike@trellis.law, or visit our website, trellis.law. Welcome back to Sidebar. We're talking today with Judge Margaret McEwen about the influence that Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas had on a broad range of social and political issues, well beyond the traditional role of the Supreme Court. The other thing that's interesting about him, he was concerned about transparency in the federal government, in the administrative state. And he felt that courts gave too much credence to administrative agencies. And of course, he'd been chair of the newly formed Securities and Exchange Commission. So he had very personal experience. That topic, of course, is back on the radar today as to how one evaluates the both scientific and other opinions in the administrative agencies. If you look at all of the things he was talking about, and he usually was talking about them in the context of the environment, he would come back today and say, well, maybe I told you so. Or he would say, these issues are back on the table and you didn't completely deal with them before, but now society should deal with them. And just to clarify, because I think there's a distinction between transparency in the administrative state and dismantling the administrative state. Oh, for sure. I mean, Douglas was concerned that so much of what went on in federal agencies was not transparent. On the other hand, he was lobbying behind the scenes in a very untransparent way. And we also have to remember the timing. Douglas goes on the court in 1940, I mean, 1939, and he is there until 1975. Well, most of that time, we didn't have a Freedom of Information Act. And that, of course, was a major piece of legislation that really changed the ability to understand what's going on in those agencies. Had they had that back then, people might have been surprised because Douglas's name would be over on a lot of documents. Like, don't expand the highway in this way, you know, stop the highway. So, you, you know, Douglas would have been all over those administrative documents. If I could push one step further, not only is there the Freedom of Information Act, but now we have social media where opinions, comments, dinner conversations, anything, name it, any kind of informal dialogue could within seconds be on the international stage and there for someone to, to have to respond to. How do you think he would fare in today's era 
of that. I think that's a great point because, um, you know, the internet, of course, and social media are two of the phenomenon that didn't exist when he was a justice. Well, one thing is that he was out publicly doing a lot of protest hikes. And sometimes it would get picked up in the local newspaper, but not necessarily in the national press. And there were, you know, a few major newspapers back then considered national press. But I can assure you today, if he were leading a protest hike down a beach or up a mountain, that would be on the internet immediately. And that would be on social media and people would be commenting on it, pro con or otherwise. Do you think he would have liked that? I, I mean, I get the impression from your book that he not so secretly enjoyed that type of controversy. I mean, he provoked it intentionally, both in his actions and in his writing. Do you think he might have thrived in this environment? I think he might because uh, he had, a, you know, a certain ego and a certain uh, joie de vivre that, you know, he, he wasn't trying to hide that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I have a follow-up to that. When I was looking, your book sent me down a rabbit hole of Justice Douglas's writings, and I have mixed feelings about it. He wanted his ideas out there. I mean, he published in mainstream, well, or publications that the masses would read, Good Housekeeping, Playboy, kind of the democratization of legal thinking out into the world. So I imagine today I could see him having a TikTok channel, putting his ideas on Substack, having some of the the other ways of, of reaching out. And I'm curious, you said no justices engage in social media. Justices do write books and they do write law review articles and they certainly speak at conferences. What What is the line about kind of getting that out there? Well, Douglas is, I think, somewhat unique in that he wrote like up to 50 books and, you know, dozens and dozens of articles. And you reference Playboy. Uh, that's a very unusual publication for someone in the judiciary to publish in. And he was asked about that. And he said, well, that's what young men read. And I want to get my message out. One of the rabbit holes that I went down was his points of rebellion. So it was written in 1969, 1970, when really the United States was in significant turmoil with a lot of domestic violence with the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement. And he said something really interesting in there that kind of related to today's, or for me, today's kind of scary domestic situation. He said, violence has no constitutional sanction and every government from the beginning has moved against it. But where grievances pile high and most of the elected spokesmen represent the establishment, violence may be the only effective response. A justice of the Supreme Court wrote that and published it at the time where there was significant violence in the United States. How do you think that would be received today? Well, I don't think it would be received well um, because... When he wrote that, of course, as you mentioned, the, the country was in turmoil. And um, he, as a justice, at least as people read that passage, was endorsing violence as a means of protest or expressing your view. Uh, he also entered an injunction um, against bombing in the Vietnam War. That lasted about a nanosecond before the other justices intervened. 
But some of these writings, like this one, Points of Rebellion, really were antithetical to what some people thought was the view or the role of the bench. So I think that in the background, those kind of writings and some of his more um, out there statements were part of the reason that then Congressman Gerald Ford started the impeachment proceedings. When we come back, we're going to talk about judicial ethics, judicial disclosure, and ethical codes of conduct. Is your skill level in desktop software inhibiting productivity as a current or future legal professional? Would an elevated understanding of basic office technologies such as Microsoft Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and PDF help streamline your workday? The Legal Technology Assessment, LTA, by ProCertus is a benchmark assessment and a training platform for law students and all legal professionals. Our online application establishes fluency within the most widely used tools of the trade. ProCertus is reshaping online learning. Come check us out at www.procertus.com. Before I come back to the environmental content, uh, if I could ask a, a little more about what we learned from his experience and his relationship with the legislature on judicial discipline. Clearly, it's difficult to discipline judges, justices who have lifetime appointments. The public, I think, now is wondering what what does history tell us about whether we should, shouldn't change the way we select, elect, define terms for judges. A friend of yours, a colleague of yours, Charles Jay, professor at University of Indiana Muir School of Law, came on our show and talked a little about just some ideas that might be considered for the future. I'm not going to ask your opinion because I know we're not going to get a preview of your thoughts on things. But looking at Justice Douglas as the example, are there lessons there we learn as we think about what should we be considering as to how to monitor, police, enforce, judicial ethics, things of that nature? Well, it certainly provides a historical backdrop and in a very different time. As I mentioned, he was big on transparency, but he was not too keen when it was suggested there would be judicial reporting on certain things. So at one point, colleagues said, well, maybe we should look at articles and books before they're published and give it an up or down. As a big First Amendment proponent, that sent him over the edge. So that never happened. And then they said, well, at least you should report the money you get. Because back then, believe it or not, they actually paid you to write articles. It's not quite like now where very few people are being paid to write articles. He didn't particularly like that, but he was prescient because he did say, well, if you're going to make me record all the money I get from my articles, how about people who own stock? Shouldn't there be a reporting on that? So when they first started these federal disclosure forms, he filed but he kind of had a little asterisk under protest. But many of the ethics rules that we have today were in a nascent stage back then. Which leads me to this thing that you said in your book. You said, Justice Douglas, in a way unthinkable today, ran a one-man lobby shop from his chambers of the U.S. Supreme Court. So why do you think that's unthinkable today? Why, why won't we learn 50 years from now that we had a justice on the Supreme Court that was advocating something behind the scenes? Well, I think that 
his advocacy was so overt and so targeted. He's in Congress, you know, just down the steps from the Supreme Court. And he recognized that all politics is local, even though all the laws are made in Washington, but you needed to capture the imagination of members of Congress. I had really the good fortune to talk to many of his former clerks. And what surprised me is they knew he is, of course, an outdoorman, and they knew that he hiked almost every Sunday on the CNO Canal. Every once in a while, he would invite them. But they were unaware of all of the, the extent of these activities. And of course, you can't really understand them until you go back and you look at the record. So he's down in Congress, and he's specifically lobbying the president, for example, on various things, or Secretary of Interior. His strategy, of course, Secretary of Agriculture, come with me. I want to show you. And if you see this place or this issue, then you will understand. So that's kind of also part of um, his approach. We're going to take a short break, and when Mitch and I return, we're going to talk with the judge about the surprisingly open lobbying efforts that Justice Douglas used to influence presidents, Congress, and administrative agencies. Jackie and I would like to take a quick minute to recommend a great podcast that, like ours, is dedicated to understanding the big issues facing our democracy. An honorable profession profiles the rising stars in American politics. From mayors to attorney generals, an honorable profession gives listeners a view from the front lines of our democracy. Check out An Honorable Profession wherever podcasts are found. The hybrid online JD program at Monterey College of Law offers the flexibility to attend classes remotely. Two factors for me when choosing a law school were that it needed to be accredited and offer an online option. The hybrid program allows me to attend classes remotely, which really helps fit my professional and personal schedule. The program is structured and rigorous and taught by professors currently practicing in the legal field. To learn more or to apply for their next term, visit montereylaw.edu. Welcome back. We're talking with Judge Margaret McEwen about the controversial and extraordinarily interesting life and career of Justice William O. Douglas. Justice McEwen talks about Justice Douglas's direct relationships with presidents of the United States, such as John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson, as well as members of Congress and federal agencies. With Kennedy, there was not a lot of time there, but I think Kennedy was a soulmate in spirit, but Douglas once said of him that he had never slept on the ground, so he would never understand some of these issues. He was much more of a blue blood. But he, he was lobbying Johnson, for example. Um, you know, he was, he was very, very active, and neither his clerks nor his colleagues probably had any sense of that. His assistants, we call them JAs today, judicial assistant, he called them his secretaries. He had two secretaries, and they were kept busy. So they probably knew more than anyone because they were writing and cor corresponding with people all over the country all the time. So like he might get a letter from someone in Ohio. I'm very concerned about these detergents going into the river and what's going to happen. Boom, he's back at them. Here's some scientific literature, and you should contact this organization near your hometown, etc. So he, he's kind of like, a, he's also a referral agency. 
Judge, this has been an eye-opening and incredibly interesting peek into the life of one of the most impactful Supreme Court justices, William O. Douglas. It really comes at a time that we are revisiting what we think is the proper role of Supreme Court and particularly what restrictions, if any, should be in place for justices off the bench, social and political activity. However, before we go, tell us how you became aware of Justice Douglas and what motivated you to write this book. The way that the book came about is, again, through serendipity. I was out snowshoeing in Wyoming, and I came across this homestead that I didn't know. I'm standing on the roof or, you know, in my snowshoes because the, the snow was so high. I knew how to get back where I started. I knew where the river was. So as I'm contemplating this, a guy comes out of one of these cabins. And I say, where am I? And he says, you are at the Murie Ranch. No, no, Murie, M-U-R-I-E. So I, I quickly learned from him that the Muries were early conservationists and biologists, had worked both in Alaska and Wyoming, and that Olas Murie was uh, president of the Wilderness Society, and his wife, Marty, who lived to 101, uh, became known as the grandmother of conservation. I was intrigued by that. One thing led to another, and eventually someone showed me a letter from Justice William O. Douglas to Marty Murray that basically says you should take this beautiful homestead and turn it over to the Park Service so it could be a place of sanctuary and beauty for people who come into the Tetons. When I was in Washington, D.C., I began to spend time at the Library of Congress, and that's where the justices' papers are. And I was really on a lark. Um, I, I was not writing a book. Um, I was just looking. And the more I looked, the more interested I got. So then I went to a few more archives and I found a, what was to me a very interesting story about Douglas's environmental and conservation legacy. And of course, we all remember, I think, as you've intimated, you know, many of his famous opinions um, and how he was known on and off the court. But this was this was a side I was not familiar with. So people said, well, you should write a book. Well, congratulations on the book's success. And, and from a personal standpoint, thank you very much for doing this. As legal educators, Jackie and I are always looking at, are we opening enough doors for the students we teach? And, and I think your book is a perfect example of their always avenues of investigation that we should be aware of as legal educators. And, and your book points that out beautifully. So thank you very much. If you'd permit me just to close with one thought, and this is really the last paragraph in the book. Douglas was a legal giant, a genius, a conservation hero, and a public philosopher. He said he was always talking to the next generation. Worried to look back on this remarkable journey, and he would despair at the environmental challenges facing the planet today. But he would delight that his relentless faith and intervention did leave the earth more beautiful than it was when he came. Many rivers are running free, choice pieces of wilderness are preserved, and the trees are still standing. Judge, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Stay with us and hear Mitch and Jackie's thoughts on today's conversation. (music) 
Mitch, it, it was such a pleasure to speak with the judge about her new book. But for me, one of the best things about this podcast is that it puts me in a position to not just be able to talk to interesting people, but to learn about and read really interesting writing. And learning about Justice Douglas was fascinating, especially about his work outside of the court um, as really a political player in Washington when it came to environmental issues, among other things, and is rather uh, kind of what we would almost consider outlandish behavior when it came to some of his conduct. Um, maybe the protest hikes is one, but also uh, writing an article for avant-garde, a subversive magazine, or uh, Playboy in order to reach a particular uh, subset of the American population. Just a fascinating man. I agree, Jackie. The part I found most interesting about this study of Justice William O. Douglas is how contemporary the issues are. Not only his environmental issues, his environmental advocacy, but the issues of what is the appropriate role of a U.S. Supreme Court justice in molding contemporary policy and theory outside of the scope of the Supreme Court. He clearly understood the power and value of the bully pulpit, as they said then, of being a U.S. Supreme Court justice when he wanted to overtly lobby congressional leaders, the media, other administrative agencies, on issues that he felt so passionately about. I think it would be fascinating to have him as a justice now doing those things, although I'm not certain I would agree necessarily that that is the appropriate role for a U.S. Supreme Court justice. But but whether I agree or not, Justice McCune's book provided us the opportunity to dig deeper into those issues, and that I appreciate greatly. Yeah, and I think you're right to ask the question about how it would be thought about in a contemporary way, because when I transferred some of his conduct to a current day setting, and you raised it in, in relation to how his his advocacy may have been more well known and, and trumpeted on social media in a way that it wasn't back then, I would be deeply uncomfortable if I knew that a Supreme Court justice was lobbying members of Congress that was speaking out on issues that might be before them, even though I wholeheartedly support his environmental agenda, I would be very uncomfortable if I knew that that was happening now. And so while we look back and see him as a character, if it was happening now, I think I'd be viewing him much differently. So I want to thank everyone for joining us today on Sidebar. And as always, Mitch and I would love to hear what's on your mind. And you can do that by going to sidebarmedia.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Versertus, Trellis.law. And thank you to our producer and music creator and performer, David Eakin, and our social media expert, Go Go Zoger. Colleges of Law and Monterey College of Law are part of a larger organization called California Accredited Law Schools. All of our schools are dedicated 
to providing access and opportunity to a legal education to marginalized communities. For more information about the California Accredited Law Schools, go to calawschools.org. That's calawschools.org.